everybody, I'm Zoe. And I'm Chandi. And this is Bound by the Cloak. I'm sure you've all heard of shows like Criminal Minds, Mindhunter, Dexter, Hannibal, Mentalist, right? There's something about the minds of criminals that makes us want to dive into this fascinating world of criminal profiling, exploring the psychological aspects of crime solving, and learning more about the minds of both the perpetrators and the investigators. Today we're speaking with Michael Cannell, the author of Incendiary. It's the true story of the mad bomber who terrorized New York City throughout the 1940s and 50s with homemade explosive devices planted in public spaces all across the city. It's also the story of Dr. James Arnold Brussel, the psychologist who developed the criminal profile of George Metesky, who we also know as the Mad Bomber. Brussel's profile allowed the authorities to catch Metesky before he was able to cause mass destruction in New York City. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be with you. We found this book because I knew nothing about the Mad Bomber. Chandi knew nothing about the Mad Bomber. And we thought it was an amazing case because it was super interesting. You know, we we are always in New York City. You know, we frequent the locations where the explosive devices, the Mad Bomber planted all the time. And just the idea of going to these locations and knowing that an explosive device went off at a particular spot, like right outside the Oyster Bar, right at Grand Central, it's unsettling, you know? You know, we didn't know much about the case, really anything at all. And most people that I've spoken to also have never heard of the Mad Bomber case. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I thought about that a lot when I was working on on the book. It's an episode of violence and terror that that seems seemed to have kind of disappeared from people's radar and I I puzzled over that as I as I worked on the book. I was not born yet when 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 the bomber was bombing, but my older brothers were. We grew up in New York City and when I was working on the book, my mother had mentioned to me that she didn't let my older brothers go outside during this, the int- most intense portion of his bombing spree. So it was, I always thought of this book as being a, a foretaste, if that's even a word, of the the terror that, that accompanied 9-11 and came after 9-11. At the time, it had a 9-11 kind of quality to it in, in, in New York City. I think that the terror of the bombing spree took on a disproportionate power because because of the shadowy aspect of it. It was not a known person. It was somebody who seemed to strike randomly in random places. I mean, the bombs were capable of certainly capable of killing people. And increasingly, he was planting the bombs with intention to kill people. But it was really, I think, the randomness that created a, stoked a psychology of of fear and terror in the city. And the other thing that I thought about while, while I was working on the book was that this was happening during the Cold War, you know, during the onset of the Cold War. And the terror of the bomber, and I think the terror of, of the Soviet Union and nuclear weapons somehow work together they they co-mingled in 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 some way um there was this free floating anxiety in 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 the air and that i think probably also worked in the bomber's favor interesting comment you made about these locations around the city for those of us who live in new york i mean we pass by these locations all the time i do I'm lucky enough to have a little shared workspace in the New York Public Library at the moment. And every single day I pass I pass the location where the bomber set off a bomb in a phone booth in the New York Public Library. And I think about it, I think about it every day as I pass that phone booth. It for me, it's as if I have a I have a kind of mental map of these locations. And, you know, I'm aware of them as I travel about the city. And like you said, this instilled fear in people at the time 
you know, I can imagine just not wanting to go outside, not you know, being concerned, like, okay, if I go to Penn Station today, is something going to go off? And I wonder, well, two questions. How did the NYPD help to make the public feel more safe or, or you know, if they, if they could? And also, before Dr. Brussel, before Dr. Brussel was involved, how did they try to investigate these bombings? The NYPD didn't really have a clue how to how to how to track him down. I mean, here's part of what really interested me about this story was that serial offenders, serial bombers, serial killers, serial rapists, are they a phenomenon of the 20th century or the latter half of the 20th century? Well, I don't think we can say that they didn't they didn't exist before. I mean, Jack the Ripper might have been the most famous serial killer in history. There are reasons to believe that serial offenders increased dramatically in the second half of the 20th century. The NYPD was not entirely equipped to deal with this, to deal with this problem. It wasn't, I don't know if we can say that it was an exactly a new problem. The serial offender was it took them by surprise. They were they were off balance. And I mean, there wasn't a lot they could do. It was really that, the, the sheer desperation of trying to get a grip on, on the investigation that caused them to go to Dr. Brussel. And just the sheer mass casualties that would occur, right? Traditional like serial killers, it's like a one-on-one -on -one murder, homicide, but this is this is mass. Yeah, I mean, the bomber did not intend to kill people at first. He really intended to make a statement, to scare people, setting his bombs off in public places. But, you know, the New York Public Library, train stations, subways, he was not intending to kill people at first. But his notion was, was that he was engaged in, in a kind of crusade, in a kind of righteous fight against the Allied government and corporate powers. And he, in his sort of delusional state, he believed that newspapers and the public would take up his cause and that all, all he all that was required was to set off these bombs to kind of get attention. But when that didn't happen, he, he made bigger bombs and he started to, to place them with, with intention to kill. And in fact, he, he was caught just before he surely, surely would have killed people. So, Michael, you know, you said your mom was fearful of the time, you know, especially with your older brother. So what were other New Yorkers like? What was going on at that time? You know, just assuming the whole city must have been on edge. So how did the bombings affect day-to-day -day life of New Yorkers? One of the, I think, the really interesting things about this episode is that we tend to think of New Yorkers or maybe all people coming together in a crisis. New Yorkers certainly came together after 9-11, right? But in this period, it was the opposite. It was as if the bomber's mental illness, his paranoia, his own anxieties and fears had been let loose in the city like a virus. And rather than come together, people in the city tended to, in many cases, to turn against one another. You had asked earlier about, you know, how the police combat combated the bomber. They, they asked for the public's help. I mean, it's like a, like a Rorschach test. So many people in the city read the description, the crude description of the bomber's activities, and they saw in their friends, their co-workers, their neighbors, in some cases, even family members, they saw traits of the bomber in them and reported them to the police. And so the police were inundated with these, with these reports, but really it was, it was just that the investigation gave people permission to read the paranoid dark traits in the people around them or encourage them to do so. One woman even wrote into the police and said, I think my husband is the bomber, please come and take him away. In my mind, it was almost as if the bomber's paranoia was spread throughout the city. His grievance was really with Con Ed, but why do you think he felt it was important to actually place bombs in public places that could harm innocent people? That's a really good question. I mean, his he had a legitimate grievance against Con Ed, the utility company. He had been employed by Con Ed, 
And he was injured in, in a furnace blast and had a series of health issues as a result. He received some compensation for his injury, but but nothing nothing like what we would expect or we would consider to be fair today. In fact, they kind of cheated him. Um, you know, they strung him along and, until time ran out and they were no longer obliged to, to compensate him properly. And it be, because the bomber was a paranoid schizophrenic, he was not able to distinguish between Con Ed, you know, the real culprit, if you want to call them the culprit, and and other forces. He, he saw Con Ed and the companies that Con Ed did business with and their customers and the government. He saw them as all part of the same conspiracy. It was, in a, in a sense, a conspiracy theory, I, I suppose. And so saw himself as a powerless, a powerless figure. And this was his way of, of striking back. And I mean, as we've said, he didn't intend to kill people at first, but later, later in, 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 his, in his growing rage and desperation, he did intend to kill people because he felt voiceless. This, I think, was his way of, of getting attention, the only way of getting attention he, he could summon. And no one was killed, but many were injured. So do you think things would have escalated if he hadn't been caught? Do you think people would have been killed? For sure. And, and he, you know, he was caught before the holiday season. The police, in their desperation, went to Dr. Brussel just before the holiday season. The police were terrified that the holiday crowds in the city would be a prime target for him. And in fact, he went to the auto show which was then in the brand new convention center, what is now Time Warner, in the location of the Time Warner building, a Columbus Circle. It was a brand new building, and there was an auto show. He, he had a sort of engineer's mind and was intensely interested in, in cars. And he went to the auto show, and he saw that it was a great opportunity for him to plant bombs because it was enormously crowded. And in fact, he didn't plant a bomb when he went the first time, figured that he would go home and come back with two bombs. And he was caught before before he did that. He would surely have, have killed people in that bombing, and if not, the sub subsequent ones. For the purposes of storytelling, when, when this book came out, there was some interest in Hollywood. But people in Hollywood were unhappy that he hadn't killed anybody. And I think that it made a better story for them if he had killed somebody. But he did injure, as you've said, he did he did injure people and, and really and really maim, maim, maim some people. I'm curious to know, somebody who is a paranoid schizophrenic, obviously he was undiagnosed. How did that go on so long with him being undiagnosed? How was that not visible to other people that he had a mental illness? That's a really interesting question. He lived with his two older sisters in Watertown, Connecticut. And I think he was in the community he was pretty universally acknowledged as being creepy, if if not dangerous. Um, he had a series of disputes with people where he worked and with his neighbors. He lived a kind of peculiar bachelor life. His, his sisters treated him almost as if he was a little child. They were childless themselves and they they their their parents had all passed away and he slept in a little bedroom in the back of the house. And they they treated him like he was not really a, a a functioning adult. And I mean, in some ways, perhaps that was emasculating. I don't I don't know. It's it, you know you could speculate about what effect that might have had on him. But he never really saw his sisters. He, they lived in the same house, but he kind of he kind of came and went on his own. And he was making bombs in the back in the back garage. And did they know? I mean, they must have known that something was going on with him because he would disappear for, for a day or so. And today, I think we would say that the sisters were in denial about him. He was pretty clearly up to something and probably something dangerous. And maybe they even knew about the bombs. But when he was eventually arrested, they denied everything. They said, no, poor George, 
he's just a gentle person and could never he's incapable of of hurting anybody. I don't know that the neighbors would have said that. I think I think in the community he was seen as being very seriously peculiar. And and maybe you know every community on some level has somebody who's who's a little bit like that. Yeah, honestly just looking at his photos. I was telling Chandi earlier, he reminds me of John Wayne Gacy. Yeah. This he has a smirk on his face in most of the photos I've seen and it's unsettling. It's unsettling is a good word for it, right? It was when when he was arrested, and maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves here, I don't know. But when he was arrested, he and he was taken to the old police headquarters on Center Street in downtown Manhattan for booking. There was a place there where you, from the street, you went downstairs. It's still there. If you're in the neighborhood, you can see this spot. And they called it going down the hole. And that was where you went down and you were booked and you were fingerprinted and photographed. But when he was brought there from Waterbury to be booked, he stood on the street. And of course, there was a huge crowd of press and tabloid photographers. And he acted as if he were on the red carpet at the Academy Awards. He stood and smiled and waved at the, at the crowd. He was coming in to be booked. And he acted as if he, he was like a hero. And I mean, I think the interpretation of that is that what he really wanted was to be seen, was to be recognized. For, for the paranoid schizophrenic, there is this quality where they they have a kind of um, believe they have kind of godlike powers and no no better than other people. And so, on some level, that scene where he's smiling and beaming in those photographs that you referred to was, ironically, I think it was kind of the highlight of his life. You know, he had led such a peculiar, lonely life, and and here he was. That for a moment, he was. He was the center of attention. So, you know, a big figure in all of this is Dr. James Brussel. So tell us about him. Yeah, Dr. Brussel, what a, I mean, what a fascinating and unusual person, right? He was a doctor, a psychiatrist. He worked for the state of New York. I believe it was called the Department of Mental Health then, mental hygiene, I think, then. Really, his job was to run the psychiatric hospitals in and around New York City. And in fact, he lived on the grounds of one of the psychiatric hospitals just on the border of Queens and Long Island. He lived there in a little cottage as a sort of campus there. And, you know, in those days, it was just before mental illness was treated um, with pharmaceuticals. And he practiced in the era when psychiatry still treated serious disorders much as they had in the 19th century. So in a way, those mental hospitals were filled with almost seemed like medieval treatments. You know, people were poor, agitated, sick people were made to take ice baths or, you know, there, there were lobotomies. Uh, there was electroshock treatment. And Dr. Brussel presided over all of this. And I don't know that we would particularly single him out as being to blame for these sort of almost like torture procedures, because it was the only thing that psychiatry had at the time. Um, but doc, Dr. Brussel, he was a big thinker and a, and a very deeply eccentric person. And part of what is so beguiling about him is that he, he appears to have been very deeply neurotic himself. Today, we might call him OCD, among other things. He clung to a kind of an order that, that seems very peculiar and neurotic now. He, he would only eat cottage cheese sandwiches for lunch. He kept parakeets and would sort of obsessively feed the parakeets from his own mouth in some cases. Um, there's sort of these episodes that, that his students at Yeshiva University would talk about how he always carried a gun everywhere because he was kind of paranoid himself. And if he felt like the students weren't paying attention, he would get up on a desk and wave the gun around. So Dr. Brussel was a little crazy himself, it appears. He had a pet theory, which he called reverse psychology. And I'll try to, it's a, it's a little confusing, but I'll try to, I'll try to explain it simply. So the way psych, psychiatry would normally work is that a patient would describe to the doctor what they've experienced. 
they would describe patterns of behavior that they had experienced in their psychiatric history. And the doctor, the psychiatrist, would normally, conventionally, would try to predict what their future might be or what what lay ahead for them or what they might do to address this. So the psychiatrist would go from a known personality and try to extrapolate from that what their behavior might be in the future. Dr. Brussel's idea was, what if you reversed it? And you just looked at behavior, but you didn't know the person. You didn't know who the person was. Could you figure out who the person was just based on, on the behavior? And that was the genesis of what we now call criminal profiling. So he had this theory, and he wrote about it, and he thought about it, and he talked about it. But what he, he didn't have is the opportunity to test this theory to apply this this theory until the police came to him with the mad bomber case. Me and Chandi are both really big on coffee. She has her pour over thingy and I have an espresso machine. But I also am really, really into tea. Like I love tea. If you are also into tea, you need to check out Sip Tea Shop. Drinking tea can be a full mind, body, and spiritual experience that surely helps me unwind after a long, stressful day. With a variety of different herbal notes and flavors, Sip Tea Shop has a tea for everyone. For instance, take my personal favorite, the Unwind, which has chamomile, lavender, and has a great aroma of fresh roses. It really helps you to relax at the end of a long day. To find out more about their great collection of teas, go to thesipteashop.com. That's T-H-E-S-I-P-T-E-A-S-H-O-P.com. Also check out their Instagram at instagram.com slash sip underscore tea shop. That's S-I-P underscore T-E-A-S-H-O-P. How did Dr. Brussel come up with the profile for the Mad Bomber? I mean, let's start there by thinking about what the poli- what the composition of the NYPD or really all police departments would have been in the 19 in the 1950s. It was very rare for police, even police officials, to have gone to college. The police really were neighborhood guys. They were almost like neighborhood thugs many of whom might have might have been criminals themselves. This is sort of the way it was in New York was that they grew up. The police, the future police and the future criminals all grew up together. They went to the same schools. They, you know, they married into each other's families. They were tough. The police were tough guys. And their way of policing was to, you know, was to rough, rough people up until they confessed or talked. And so the idea that a, an expert expertise wasn't something that the police were particularly interested in. But in their desperation, they went to to, uh, Dr. Russell to seek his opinion. Because he was a state employee and had worked with the police in some capacities, he was a known quantity to the police. And the head of the crime lab, the laboratory that conducted what we now call forensics, had an idea that they should seek out Dr. Brussel's opinion, even though they did not yet know about Dr. Brussel's theory of reverse psychology. And they went to Dr. Brussel's office, which was across from City Hall in downtown Manhattan, and they arrived with a couple of satchels of evidence, the exploded bombs, the letters that the bomber had written to newspapers, whatever evidence they had. And they showed it all to Dr. Brussel. And Dr. Brussel looked at it all. And over the course of a couple of hours, he examined the evidence and took notes. And he looked out the window over at the park next to City Hall. And he allowed his mind to kind of wander. And this was his technique, was his idea was that reverse psychology, what we now call profiling, had an almost kind of mystic quality. That if he looked at all the evidence that his own subconscious 
would digest the evidence and produce an image of of the bomber and and that's what happened and he turned to he turned to this police lieutenant and said the man that you're looking for is from a slavic background he lives with an older female relative he has a history of workplace disputes he's never had a girlfriend and lastly when you catch him he'll be wearing a double-breasted jacket and those things weren't entirely 100% true but they were like 95% true it was just astonishing as it turned out it was like an earthquake in in law enforcement when the police the police used this this profile as we would now call it to narrow down the suspects that were culled from the con ed files of disgruntled work former employees and when they caught when they went to to the bomber's home his name was George Metesky when they went to his home in Waterbury Connecticut in fact he wasn't wearing a double-breasted jacket he was in his pajamas because they arrived about midnight but when they told him to go get dressed he came out with the double-breasted jacket he did live with turned out two female older relatives he was from an eastern european background he had never had a girlfriend so how did dr brussel do that how did he accomplish that well partially it was just sherlock holmes like deductive reasoning but partially it was applying freudian theories of of behavior and so what then happened is that dr brussel was called upon to apply this new technique to other cases most notably the Boston Strangler case in Boston and he became famous in law enforcement circles and he got phone calls from police departments all across the country all of whom had these cold cases in their files that had never had never been solved and then then eventually eventually the FBI came came to Dr. Brussel and wanted wanted to learn how he did what he did so his influence was huge i mean what was his experience and what was his technique that actually led to modern day profiling well i mean he had it seems to me that he had kind of two things going you know something going for him something going against him on the one hand this peculiar method that he had tended it might not be able to identify an offender out of the crowd but it did provide real insights and what he had going against him was that it was it appeared to be non-scientific it was non-scientific really it was i mean he was applying freudian theories how do you match the behavior of an unknown offender to behavior that is suggested by freudian theory what can you glean from the forensics that tells you about the behavior how does that behavior match some of the things patterns of behavior that psychiatrists have observed in certain kinds of patients that was where he was working in that spot but it was a sort of it was a sort of intelligent guesswork really and and what he would say was that it was intuition i mean he really believed that this was a kind of mystic mystical process but what he had going against him was that it was a mystical process i mean law enforcement you know the the police chief in kansas city or sacramento california does not want to hear about a mystical process so it it's it was so so interesting if you think think about america at that moment a lot of psychiatric thinkers had come to america from from europe because of world war II and had set up practices in new york primarily but elsewhere and also had prestigious teaching positions in american universities and so psychiatry had become i don't know if fashionable is the right word i think fashionable is partially the right word you know Marilyn Monroe was had a psychiatrist. You know, intellect great intellectuals and public figures were not embarrassed to say that they were in in analysis or in therapy. And so there there was Dr. Brussel brought this technique along at a time when, you know, for the first time Americans at least might have given this some credence. If he had tried to sell this technique 15 years earlier, 20 years earlier, 
Would anybody have paid any attention to him? I mean, I don't know, but I kind of don't think so. I think that part of what happened was that he came along with reverse psychology at exactly the same moment. He at the exactly the right moment, I mean. He he came along when at least some quarter of the public and law enforcement was willing to listen to him. And he had enough success that the FBI wanted to know how to do this. And so an FBI agent came to him and said, we'd like to learn how you do what you do, and we'll pay you your hourly rate for that. And Dr. Brussel said, the FBI can't afford my hourly rate. In fact, I think that was a joke because I think I think the FBI probably could afford his hourly rate. And so Dr. Brussel shared this technique with this agent, and the agent promoted this cause within the FBI and did so at some peril because the FBI was then headed by J. Edgar Hoover, who was nothing if not public relations conscious, image conscious. And I think J. Edgar Hoover was terrified that the public would perceive the FBI as being engaged in some kind of like voodoo, you know, voodoo law enforcement, some kind of hokey, mystical law enforcement technique. And so profiling was developed at the FBI in its next stage in a windowless room that was something like six floors underground. They basically hid this office in the basement of FBI headquarters and didn't really tell anybody about it for for a long time. This um, episode is represented in the TV show, I guess it's Mindhunter is what it's called, right? A very, it's a fic- really fictionalized version of what, what really happened and, and pays no, there's no acknowledgement of Dr. Brussel's role in that, in, in that show. And the, the FBI, because of its resources, was able to, over time, gather data on different kinds of criminal behavior. And they really did what J. Edgar Hoover wanted was to, was to call it a science. I think it really did become some, something like a science. What is the behavior of serial rapists? The FBI has, has been collecting data on that for now uh, 60 years. So it's it's about data and behavior. Is it entirely a science? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've spoken to profilers today who would say that profiling at its best confirms suspicions or leads that they might that they would have otherwise. But profiling alone cannot identify a an, an offender. It's still intelligent guesswork, I guess, is the bottom line. You mentioned Mindhunter, and I've seen that show, and yeah, you're right, they did not mention Dr. Russell. But we see Mindhunter, we see Criminal Minds, we see all these other shows, and they make it seem as if profilers are just, you know, law enforcement that focuses on profiling. But in reality, what is the typical background of a profiler? Like, are they more on the psychological side of things? Or are they more actual law enforcement with a badge? That's really a good question. I mean, I, I'm going to say I don't I don't really know the answer to that because my focus was in the 1950s. So I don't really know. I've spoken to a fair number of profilers today when I was doing the research for this book, but I, I confess I don't really know whether their careers would have originated in psychiatry or in, in law, law enforcement. I, I don't, I, that's a really, really interesting question. And it's where psychiatry and law enforcement meet, but I don't, I don't know where, what sort of, what sort of background they would have had. I'm curious as to what were the profilers that you spoke to like? It's interesting that because Hollywood had, you know, developed somewhere along the way over the last 10 years, I don't know, it's sort of a random number, Hollywood developed this fascination with profiling that the many many of these profilers have had second careers as consultants to TV shows and probably much more lucrative careers. I spoke to one woman whose whose name I I'm embarrassed to say I can't recall who was at the University of Edinburgh and she was really uh, she was really an academic. So I, I think that there are a lot of people who who study this 
study profiling as an academic exercise and and may never apply it as uh, you know in law enforcement and then then there there are many people who work for the FBI or the DEA have had second second careers and have kind of capitalized on the public's fascination with this this topic do you remember the moment that you realized you had to write a book on the mad bomber and what was that moment like such a great question. I don't remember where I originally heard about George Metesky, the Mad Bomber. I often, I often write down or take notes on possible book topics. I mean, I do that all the time. And most of them do not pan out for one reason or another. Somebody has already done it. What happens is that let me just back up and say is, is that if you're a book author, people are constantly saying, telling you what you should write about with good intentions. But it's a little bit like you don't want to hear it that much. Because <laughs> often it's just like a vague area that's kind of interesting, but it's not really a book topic. Like people might say, you should both write a book about golf. And I'm thinking in my head, okay, but what about golf exactly? You know, so to be a book, I think this it there needs to be a story. Like a there needs to be an actual story. And the story has to have a certain architecture. And I'm not sure I can say exactly what that architecture is, but I, I feel like you kind of recognize it when you see it. And so in the case of the Mad Bomber, I, th I think that the first thing I saw, the first thing I noticed was a photograph of, of George Monteski. One of the photographs that one of you had mentioned earlier where he's, he's smiling, madly smiling. And, you know, and then, and then I started to read about him and, you know, I could see very clearly from that first moment that that there that there was sort you know, the story had a kind of had an architecture. I guess that that's the word that I want to use. There was there was a manhunt. There was a mystery. There was a manhunt. Um, there were police personalities. Um, there was this shadowy figure. I saw it as kind of two narratives colliding with his arrest. The police looking for the bomber, the bomber operating kind of furtively. I could kind of see the whole book from from very, very early on. And that's exciting. You know, if you're a book author, that's thrilling. Once you've satisfied yourself that nobody has written that book already, then it's exciting. It's really exciting to do it. And 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 it's exciting to do the to do the reporting and the research and and flesh it out. You know, just to talk about profiling, there's different sources that talk about criminal profiling really starting around the time of Jack the Ripper. So what do you think about that? And But, you know, you're saying that it was really the Mad Bombers case that started this era of criminal profiling. So just curious about, you know, your thoughts on yeah. Jack the Ripper. I don't really know anything about Jack the Ripper. What I, what I can tell you is that profilers today all point to Dr. Brussel as the founding father of profiling as they knew, knew it, as they know it. I think unanimously would refer to him as the person who's, who started the, the discipline in, in, in some form. Did some kind of, did some kind of, I don't really know the details of the Jack the Ripper story, but did some, I mean, did the police were probably always using clues and some kind of evidence to try to figure out the personality and motivation of an offender. So I guess in that sense, profiling kind of maybe always existed. I don't know the particulars of the Jack the Ripper case. Were they doing something like what we would call profiling today? They had asked for the expertise from a doctor. I believe his name was Dr. Bond. I was just a medical doctor, but I, I think its profile was basically based on examining the bodies um, mm -hmm. and evidence. Pretty basic things, you know. He said Jack the Ripper probably was not a doctor or medical professional, was probably not a butcher, even though that's what the police initially thought. The idea that, okay, yes, he mutilated bodies in a, you know, in a sexual way, probably gaining some sort of sexual gratification from doing it, that was probably the extent of the profile. And I guess the way I think about it is Dr. Brussel was able to come up with a profile that allowed law enforcement to actually catch George Metesky as to where the profile for Jack the Ripper didn't really lead to an arrest. It didn't lead to any specific suspect. So I can see yeah, why Dr. Brussel is is seen as, you know, the sort of the founder, right? The sort of the beginning of criminal profiling. 
I think a cynical answer would be that Dr. Brussel was very effective at what he did as a profiler, but he was also very effective as a self-promoter. Uh, he was really a showman. A cynical answer, I think, would be that he gets credit for inventing profiling partially because he promoted himself as as having this special technique. Maybe other people were doing this, but they didn't have his skill at talking about it and promoting it. It's also a difference in time. You know, you have the 1800s versus, you know, the 1950s. Yeah. They never caught Jack the Ripper, did they? No. We know that Dr. Brussel died in 1982. But if he was still alive today, would you have wanted to meet him? And if so, what would you ask him or talk to him about? Oh, of course I would want to meet him. Of course. Who wouldn't want to meet him? Such a peculiar and interesting person. And also it would be my obligation to do it if I was if I was working on the book, it would be my it would be my obligation to do it. I was not able to talk to him, obviously. He did write a diary which would have been fascinating to read. And I think I would have been able to read it. But it was in his will that it be destroyed upon his death. I did speak to his stepchildren, who were very generous in sharing their memories of him with me. They did not have a particularly great relationship with him. I don't think he was a great stepdad. He was neurotic and super controlling and bossy. I mean, earlier I mentioned that I think today he would be diagnosed as OCD. He was so controlling that he would tell his wife, their mother, how she should wear her hair that day. He would also kind of dictate what she was going to wear. I don't know that he was a particularly generous person. They felt unsettled by him. And, you know, they were with the remove of... 30, 30 years or so, 40 years, they were able to kind of laugh about him. To be children in his household was was uncomfortable and 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 at times perhaps scary. I think if if I had the opportunity to speak to him, I think he would have spoken to me quite readily because, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, he was a showman. I think he was a self-promoter. And I think he loved to talk and particularly talk about himself. Um, and I think he would have had a lot to say. And he did write a book. He wrote a kind of, he wrote a book that was a kind of description of the cases that he worked on. He was also on the radio quite often as a guest on radio talk shows. Long before there were podcasts, you know, there were radio talk shows. And he was prolific writer in terms of you know, writing letters to newspapers, responding to public events or events that touched upon his field of expertise. So I say all of this just by way of evidence that he was highly expressive, had a lot to say, and was not shy about expressing himself. And I think certainly would have been keenly interested in somebody writing a book about him, although I suspect might have been highly controlling about it. What is the most fascinating thing that you've come across or learned either about George Metesky, Dr. Brussel, or just New York City and law enforcement at that time? It was just uh, so interesting to to learn about and write about New York at that time in the in the late 40s and the 50s because it was a New York that was it was poised sort of between two 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 time periods it was the it was the mo- it was the modern world was was arriving and the and the the old world of the pre-war world was kind of kind of still still in evidence in some ways and it was it was a moment when scientific innovations were 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 everywhere and replacing the old way of of doing things you know it was it was the cold war which brought you know nucle- nuclear weapons and an entirely different entirely different way of thinking about the world and enormous scientific breakthroughs and i think profiling was fit with that i mean profiling was was part of that and psychiatry was part of that so i mean i've lived in new york my whole life and it was it was so interesting to be exposed to the New York of of the 19, 1950s and to see to see how it operated. It was it was a moment when America was 
I mean, I suppose America still is predominant, but was it was in the post-war period, it's hard to say. I mean, America had most of the wealth in the world, and New York City had most of the wealth in America. And all of these different fields were sort of colliding and leaping ahead. And just so interesting that that profiling occurred sort of in the in the middle of that. Science was was making great leaps in understanding the world around us, the outside world. But here was this one peculiar genius who was also helping us to understand the internal world as well. I like that peculiar genius. He was a peculiar genius. I'm curious, would you have wanted to meet George Metesky? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Of course. Of course. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, why not? I mean, I w- it wouldn't have been scary, I think, to meet him. I don't think he was a scary figure in, in person. I think he was a meek he was a meek man who who was sort of you know frightened of the world um with this peculiar you know with this deep with this violent with this violent impulse but of course he you know he was i mean part of what was so interesting about him was that he had tuberculosis and he was sick mentally and physically but he outlasted everybody in the story I mean, I forget now, you guys may remember because you read the book recently, but I can't remember what year he died, but he outlasted everybody. And he went home to Waterbury after spending, what, like a, a decade or more in, in a psychiatric hospital and lived like any other old codger in his family home. And any of these characters would have would have lived long enough for me to interview them, but but of course, I mean, I just like I would have had ten thousand questions for him, and and just to hear to hear the story, to hear his voice, and hear him hear him talk about it, in much of which, no doubt, would have been a kind of warped version of events. It would have been it would have been fascinating, and we didn't really talk about the letters that he wrote to newspapers, but there were these long letters that he wrote to newspapers, you know, claiming that he was. Uh, representing the the all of the little people who were who were abused by the corporate powers or the governmental powers. I imagine he would have talked in that spirit. Of course, I would have wanted to to hear hear all that. I'm quite confident, as I said, that Dr. Brussel would have talked would have been willing to talk to me. I don't know that George Metesky would have talked to me. And he signed all of his letters FP, which I you know which I believe stands for fair play, which is interesting. Right. Weird and interesting. And when the police went to his house in the middle of the night to arrest him, the clincher was he was still denying that he had anything to do with this. And the clincher was that one of the detectives said, what does FP stand for? And he looked at the detective and said, fair play. And that's when they knew that they, you know, that they had the right man for sure. That just seems so insane. (laughs) (laughs) But also, he doesn't seem to be like the mastermind that some of the other serial killers that you look at them and you're like, no, I don't even want to be around you. I don't think he had a Charles Manson-like demeanor. He did not. I don't know that he would have appeared menacing in person. Peculiar, yes. And he did have disputes with his neighbors and with people that he worked with. But he, I don't know that he was physically threatening. I don't think he was like, I don't think he was anything like Charles Manson. He did inspire some of the other serial offenders later on, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, very deliberately modeled some of what he did after George Metesky. He has he had said that he had George Metesky in mind. And this isn't exactly the same thing, but Abby Hoffman, who was the head of the Yippies, which was kind of the radical and sometimes violent arm of, of you know, in the, in the 60s, kind of the hippie movement, but a kind of political violent version of the hippie movement. He um, he invoked George Metesky's name at times as well. So part part of his his legacy lived, you know, long long after he had stopped planting bombs. So last thing I wanted to do was just ask you if you could briefly tell us about yourself and your writing. Yeah, I worked in newspapers and magazines most of my life. I worked I worked as a kind of a baby reporter at Time Magazine. In the 80s, when when Time Magazine was still kind of a a big journalistic force, um, I learned a lot about reporting there. I worked at the New York Times for for seven or eight years. I left the Times to write a book about 
car racing in Europe in the 50s, which was ironic because I don't know anything about cars and I don't own a car and I don't really particularly like cars. But I was really writing about the people, one of whom was the first American to kind of break into that world. I wrote this book that we've been discussing, Incendiary, and subsequently wrote a book called A Brotherhood Betrayed which was about uh, the Jewish mafia in the 1930s in in Brooklyn, more specifically, a a group of Jewish mobsters that came to be known as Murder Incorporated. Um, They were kind of the enforcement arm of organized crime at the time when crime became organized. And more specifically about the man who was the head of Murder Incorporated, who became and probably the one of the great turncoats, one of the great informants on the mafia, and not coincidentally, went out the window of a hotel in Coney Island just before he was going to testify in a trial. I don't think he went out that window voluntarily, but nobody knows. That's a case that has never been solved. And um, that book is called The Brotherhood Betrayed. And I'm now finishing a book about two detectives in the 80s and 90s in New York who were secretly on the mafia payroll. So they were feeding the mafia police information, but were also involved in as many as 15 murders on behalf of the mafia. Some of, some of in some cases, they actually pulled the trigger themselves. Those actually sound really amazing. Well, thank you so much. Um, we really appreciated you doing this, talking to us about the book and about Mad Bomber and Dr. Brussel and everything. Of course, this is really fun. You guys are great. And I, I, so, I, I'm so grateful for your interest in all this. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. We'd like to thank Michael Connell for being on the show, giving us insight into the Mad Bomber Dr. James Brussel, and the birth of criminal profiling. Make sure to pick up your copy of Incendiary at your local bookstore. In addition to Incendiary, Michael Cannell is also the author of A Brotherhood Betrayed, the man behind the rise and fall of Murder, Inc., which you can also find on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. As always, we are on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts for as long as it lasts. And we're on Good Pods, too. We're on X. We're on Threads. We're on Instagram, even TikTok. So you can like, follow, subscribe, whatever you need to do on those social media platforms. And if you like what you hear, let others know. Please share the episodes that you love the most with the people that you like the most. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Bound by the Cloak. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. Catch you next time. Until next time. 